0: We're looking at the account of David and Goliath this evening, uh, which we find in uh, 1 Samuel 17. Um, We've all heard this story. Many of us have heard this account from the time we were children. um, And the applications are varied. In Sunday school classes, um, people like to give a, a moral lesson on courage or how to act or how to walk in faith. Um, and we all as sinful human beings tend to identify in this story with David of course David is the hero and all of us as Michael Horton is fond of saying uh, like to view ourselves as heroes in our own story so we identify ourselves with David however scripture does not identify us with David David is uh, he points to Christ his life is a revelation of who God is and a foreshadowing of Christ. And by that I do not mean to hint or imply that this is not historical. This this took place exactly as the scripture accounts for it. Uh, everything takes place exactly the way it says. And so we look at those words and we understand uh, who Christ is and who God is. One thing about God that is fascinating uh, for us to understand is God delights in revealing himself to his image bearers. He created us with ears, with minds, with understanding. Um, And yes, sin has clouded our minds and closed our ears and hardened our hearts. Um, But God is in the process of opening hearts and minds, in the process of awakening us, so that he can reveal himself to us. The same attribute of God throughout all eternity that uh, this perfect fellowship in the Trinity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is a very complicated subject, but that attribute of God pouring out himself uh, in, in the members of the Trinity also takes place with us as human beings. God created men to enter in, men and women, to enter into that fellowship uh, to learn about God. So everything God does is for the purpose of revealing himself to us. Um, And so when we look at the Old Testament, I want to look at it from that perspective. What is God teaching us about himself? And everything in the Old Testament is really can be summed up with three phases. There's creation, there's fall, there's redemption. Um, That's everything from beginning to end. Um, The great theologian Graham Goldsworthy um, has compared Scripture, the revelation of Scripture, to... Um, building a bridge, and he accounts the the tale, and I haven't verified this is true, I have no reason to doubt whether this is true or not. Uh, When they built the bridge across the Niagara Falls, uh, they had a little bit of a problem. How were they going to bridge that gap over the falls? Um, And the story is that they took an arrow and shot the arrow over the falls, uh, and the arrow was tied to a fishing line. And so once they got the fishing line across the falls, then they tied larger and larger cables to the line and pulled them over until they had a large enough cable to bear the weight of beginning the process of building a bridge. Using that example, uh, Graham Goldsworthy points out how scripture is very similar in that there's a shot uh, shot across the bow of God revealing himself to us. And as the Old Testament um, continues, there's more and more information added. There's nothing new. There's no, I reject the dispensationalist view where God tries something, it doesn't work, and so he tries something else. It's what we call progressive revelation, where everything is an addition to what has gone before. Everything that God says is true, and so he builds on that previous revelation over and over and over again. And so the reason these accounts are so important is for us to understand who Jesus is, who comes uh, in the flesh in the New Testament, we have to understand the Old Testament which has laid the foundation uh, for the revelation that is to come in Christ. He wasn't out of the blue and brand new. He built on everything that had gone before. That's why he said repeatedly, it is written, it is written, it is written. And then most tellingly, when he's walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize him, beginning at the very beginning, he, ex- he expounds to them all of the law and all of the prophets. And he says, they testify of me. Uh, thus the name of this uh, series of studies, they testify of me. All of these accounts testify of Christ so let's with that in mind let's look at the background of david and goliath and see where that's coming from it it's not just out of the blue it's in the the center of this revelation a new step in the revelation is the coming of david the king uh, there's a whole preparation involved for the coming of david uh, the preparation is given to us in the book of judges Uh, Judges is the aftermath of Joshua. Joshua gives them the land, he divides it all up, gives everybody their allotments, and the book of Judges begins with, in those days there was no king in Israel, everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. That is not good. I remember reading that when I was a child and thinking that doing that which was right in your own eyes was a pretty good thing to do. Well, see, they're all trying to do what's, what's right. But then you read it a little more closely and you understand that doing what's right in your own eyes is not a good thing when you're talking about fallen human nature. And so the end of the book of Judges, I preached on it four or five years ago and people are still talking about it, Um, the end of the book of Judges are not pretty stories, not pretty accounts, they're very, very ugly um, and with no commentary from the sacred writers, simply a description. And that leaves a lot of people very pained inside. Why is God allowing all of this to happen? And then Judges breaks forth into the book of Ruth, which is all preparation for the coming of David. Judges ends with there was no king in Israel. Ruth ends with the genealogy to David. So this is all that preparation building up to King David. And what's the importance of King David? It goes back to the idea of kingdom. The Kingdom of God is a prevalent theme throughout scripture. It's the most, the, the primary thing that Jesus talks about when he talks about the gospel. He talks about the gospel of the kingdom of God. When Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, um, God, the judgment on the world was death entered into the world. And because of, hold on just a second here. Um, Because of that judgment that's entered into the world, God gave Israel, or, or God gave the whole world into the hands of sin and misery and death. The devil became a usurper in what was supposed to be the kingdom of God. The Garden of Eden was to spread throughout the whole world. Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply, be little image bearers and have little image bearers and spread throughout the entire world, spreading the kingdom of God, the revelation of God, the beauty of God throughout the entire world. Of course, that didn't last very long because sin entered into the world. After sin entered into the world, God's world was usurped by a foreign usurper uh, who held them under strict bondage. And you just read some of the descriptions of the ancient empires and the ancient kingdoms. We have nothing even close today to the cruelty and brutality of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the ancient Philistines, the Egyptians, uh, and some of the brutalities of the ancient world because Satan was given free reign by God. Except in one place. God promised Abraham that he was going to restore that kingdom and take it back from the kingdom of the devil course we know this because they're just little hints of what God said to Abraham he was going to provide through Abraham a king a people and a land that's all that's necessary for a kingdom a king a people and a land and you have a kingdom and so God is reestablishing this kingdom of God on the earth um, but the book of Judges everything falls apart in the book of Judges, everybody is sinning continually, falling into the same trap that Adam fell into over and over and over again. And there's that cycle of sin and death and misery. And now, this land, God's land, God's earth, the, the country of Canaan, the land of Canaan, has been usurped by a foreign usurper. Judges 13, verse 1, there's a lot here. In just one verse, it says, And the children of ev- evil, bleh, the children of Of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. You see the echo of exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Here it is in very practical terms. Because of the sin of the people of God, God delivered them into the bondage of a usurper. You want to serve other gods, you will serve other gods with rigor, God is saying. And so the Philistines have usurped the land of Israel. From the Philistines' perspective, the land of Canaan is their land. Um, And they're the rulers. uh, And the Israelites are simply a tribal people who happen to be a little bit feisty at times. Uh, You've got to put them down every once in a while. And the, sometimes there's a real irritant. Like when Samson came along, that was a real irritant. They started getting really uppity. Um, and, and the Philistines would have to crush them down again and again and again. And there were large victories when Samson crushed 3,000 of them, but nothing really too serious for them to pay a lot of attention to. This is the backdrop. The nation of Israel, just like the world is now under the dominion of a foreign usurper. And God is going to show himself strong in delivering Israel from this foreign usurper. And in the process, he's going to reveal himself to Israel and to all of us. We all tend to believe that victory over the enemy is going to come through our self-will, through our power, through our strength, through our abilities, to making proper choices, through our wisdom. All these things that we think are going to overcome the enemy. Um, Just a very simple thing in each of our lives. I know this is true about you even though I haven't met many of you because I know human nature and I know what the scripture says. You have sin in your life, and you tell yourself every single day, tomorrow I'm going to be better, I'm not going to sin anymore. And then tomorrow you do exactly the same thing that you did the day before. That's how much power you have. You can't even defeat the sin in your own life. This is illustrated in a very practical way in the nation of Israel. They are under the domination of a power that is too strong for them because it comes from God. How can they stand up and fight against the Philistines? They tried. They were crushed over and over again. When you start interpreting these stories as the entire Israel army was cowardly and they didn't stand up against the Philistines like they should have, you've missed the point. One thing the Israelite army knew for certain was that they couldn't defeat the Philistines. They were powerless against the Philistines. We'll get to that in just a minute. 1 Samuel opens up with Hannah, a woman. All of a sudden, the power switches, and now you're talking about a woman. She's not even married to a priest or to a king or to anybody. She's just married to a guy who happens to have another wife because she doesn't even have any children. She can't bear any children at all, but she loves the Lord. And so that account of Hannah, Hannah, chapter First uh, Samuel chapter two, of Hannah's prophesy, prophesying that the Lord's anointed is going to come with strength from the Lord, and he's going to defeat all of God's enemies and crush them, thinking not only of Peninah, her rival, uh, the one that taunted her severely, but also thinking of the Philistines and Hophni and Phineas, the two wicked sons of Eli in the temple. Israel's a mess. And she gives birth to Samuel. God has mercy on Israel. Israel calls out for a king because Israel realizes they're, they're not strong enough for the Philistines. What they really need is a king. This lack of faith uh, from the Israelites displeased the Lord, which is a whole other subject. Um, so I'm not going to get into all of that. But God does mercifully and graciously give them a king. He gives them King Saul. He wasn't trying to fool them with King Saul. He wasn't trying to give them a bad gift, as the scripture says. We're the children of God. Is he going to give us something evil when we ask for something good? They asked for something and God wanted to do good to them. But he also wanted to reveal himself to them. So he gave them the king that they asked for. He was head and shoulders above all the others. He was an excellent fighter. God filled him with his spirit so that he was able to win tremendous victories over the Amalekites. He was uh, able to act wisely. Um, In the first few chapters of Saul's reign, he's welcomed among the Israelites. They praise him, he brings peace and unity. In fact, he reigns initially so wisely and so well, now the Philistines are paying attention. Now it's not just a tribal group that's gotten out of control. Now it's someone who's declaring a kingdom. And to declare a kingdom means to declare war against the Philistines. And so the Philistines are declaring war. That's where we are. Saul, though, has two fatal errors. He doesn't understand the nature of God's kingdom. He doesn't understand that God's kingdom comes from the hand of God alone. He doesn't understand that it's not won by power, by strength, by might, or by manipulating the gods. It's by God's free grace and goodwill alone. And so when Saul is tested, he's given two choices. The The Philistine army is getting closer and closer and closer to Saul. And I remember when I said for decades they have been smashed uh, by the Philistine army. They have every right to be afraid. Saul's army, they're starting to get smaller and smaller as the Philistine army is closer and closer. There's one problem. The problem is Samuel commanded Saul saying, thus says the Lord, don't offer sacrifice until I get there. When I get there, we'll offer the sacrifice, but don't do it till I get there. And so Saul is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And getting more and more afraid. His army is getting more and more afraid. His army is running out, deserting him until he finally only has one little tiny handful and the Philistine army is right there and still no sign of Samuel. Haven't we all had the experience of thinking God was going to show up and then disappointed because he didn't? This is when we're challenged. What are we going to do? Are we going to believe the words of God Or are we going to take matters in our own hands and try to protect ourselves? Saul thought, I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to take care of this myself. God apparently is not going to show up. So I will reach out and take this. So Saul offered the sacrifice. And the second the sacrifice was offered, Samuel shows up. Samuel goes, What are you doing? Saul says, "I, I was afraid. The Philistines are right there. My army is leaving. The battle is going to start any minute and I didn't offer the sacrifice to the Lord. how am I going to get his favor if I don't offer the sacrifice And Saul says you Samuel says you've done foolishly don't you know the Lord would have established the kingdom in your hands but now he won't now he's going to take it away. see Saul in reaching for this on his own terms lost everything and so now, There was another event where Saul didn't obey in the slaughter of King Agag, and so um, Samuel says to him, to obey is better than sacrifice. To hearken is better than the the, the fat of rams. Saul, Saul missed something. The reason that Israel was in the mess to begin with was because of disobedience. The reason the whole human race has fallen is because of disobedience. How on earth do we think we're going to bring about salvation by obedience? We don't have the strength. We don't have the power. And if we can't bring it about by obedience, how on earth are we going to bring it about by disobedience? This was where Saul's problem was. What God is teaching us is that there is going to be a king But in order for the king to establish a kingdom, this king must be righteous and obedient and pleasing to the Lord. Saul was not. So Saul is removed. God establishes instead a man according to God's own heart. And this was David. David is anointed king in chapter 16 of Samuel. Samuel finds him in Bethlehem, his ancestral home, and he anoints him with oil, pours the oil on his head, which symbolizes the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And as soon as David is anointed with oil, it says, The Spirit of the Lord rested on David and was taken from Saul. So Saul, who up until that point had the Holy Spirit, which gave him wisdom, I'm talking about earthly wisdom, the earthly gifts to act as a king and to do it well. The doctrine of scripture, here's a little side note, is whether a man is a believer or an unbeliever, whether a woman is a believer or unbeliever, if they have the gift to run a business, to make good choices as a president or a congressman, uh, to be a judge, to be a policeman, to write music, to write poetry, to create art, whatever that is... All of those gifts come from the Holy Spirit. Of course, we also know saving gifts come from the Holy Spirit. That's another story. God gave Saul every gift to run the kingdom wisely and well. And up until that point, Saul did, except in the matter of obedience. But when the Holy Spirit was taken from Saul, at that point he became paranoid, irrational, Foolish, to the point where his rage would overtake him and he'd throw a spear against the boy playing the harp. He just went nuts and fearful. Thus we come to chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, which is a very big change in Saul. Now the Philistine army is face to face with Saul. There's a valley in between them. And they're champion is Goliath of Gath who's a monstrously huge man he doesn't suffer from what we now call giantism uh, he was of a pure genetic code than we have today if that makes sense if you can we know genetics watered down generation after generation after generation it's like if you have a brother and sister that get married today their genetic code is going to uh, come up with some pretty monstrous things after several generations if families intermarry too much. Uh, We know, for instance, the kings and queens of of Europe uh, had a great deal of madness because of centuries of interbreeding. But as you get way back towards the flood, this genetic code was pure. There were races of men that were termed giants. Their strength was as much as their stature. These people were undefeated. The small measure of Goliath is over nine feet tall. um, And his power matched when it's described what his his spear was like. A a normal man could not even lift his spear. This is a monstrous man. He's the champion. Every day he comes out of the Philistine line and he bellows and he yells and he reproaches and he insults. the God of Israel, the people of Israel, Saul, the nation, and the nation is cowering. Remember, the Holy Spirit has been taken from Saul. So now Saul cannot do what he was anointed to do. Saul was anointed to be the king. He was anointed to defeat the enemies. That's what kings did. And he was unable to do that. And so all of Israel is just waiting. And then David comes. David is a boy, uh, probably not a a youth, uh, probably 17, 18, 19 years old. um, At the prime of his youth, uh, ruddy and good looking, the scripture says he is. Um, And people notice him, Uh, even though he's the youngest. He's a shepherd, and yet he has experiences of the power of God. He knows what it is to defeat enemies that are more powerful than he is. The Spirit of God came upon him. He was able to defeat a bear. He was able to defeat a lion. Both of those would have been too much for a boy in the wilderness. And yet, the power of God came on him. He's sent by Jesse. Jesse is his father. Jesse's old. Jesse sends David to see how his brothers are doing. He has three brothers that are serving in Saul's army. David knows Saul. Saul pays about as much attention to David as most people pay attention to the musicians in the room. Um, And so he doesn't remember who David is. He doesn't know who he is. Uh, When the evil spirit came on uh, on Saul, David was invited to play the harp for Saul, we read in chapter 16, and the beautiful music of the harp would soothe Saul. But Saul didn't know who he was, didn't care. He was the guy that played the harp. That's true, you know. That's, a, that's another story. Um, so David knows Saul, but Saul doesn't know David. He doesn't remember who he is. David shows up, and he checks on his brothers. He sees how his brother's doing. He brings gifts to them. He brings provisions to them. And then Goliath shows up. Remember, the point of this account is the Spirit of the Lord has come on David and has departed from Saul. This is a supernatural thing that's happening here. David is the anointed one of God. And he sees this uncircumcised Philistine reproaching the armies of Israel. And it fires him up. And he says, who is this that's speaking against the God of Israel? And he goes to see Saul. And now I'll read from verse 34 of 1 Samuel 17. He goes to Saul and he says, I will fight. You don't need to be afraid. I will go out and take him on. See, Saul is the one that's supposed to be doing this. Saul is not like a king today. Um, He's not a 73-year-old man who's never led an army in battle. Saul is, the king was supposed to be the first one in battle. That's why they anointed him king. Saul is not doing his work because he's not been filled with the Spirit. He's terrified. David has the Spirit. And so he says, I will go. Now verse 34 of 1 Samuel 17. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. When it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord, who has delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine." And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, put a bronze helmet on his head. He clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these. I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ready, good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you, and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air, and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know That there is a God in Israel. That all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. And that's exactly what happens. David takes the sling. uh, He approaches the Philistine and with one stone he knocks the Philistine down. uh, And the Philistine is knocked out on the ground. David takes the sword, and he takes the the head off of the Philistine, presents it to the camp of Israel, and you can just see the great pause. And then it says, when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Now they all ran away. The thing is, is courage itself comes from the Spirit of God. The fact that the Philistines were courageous, vicious, unbeatable fighters. That was the power given to them by God. It was, back to Judges, because of the sins of Israel that God had sold them into the hands of the Philistines. It wasn't an accident. It was because of the sins of Israel. So here we have not only David defeating the Philistines, but we also see the power of God, how David was not capable of doing this if God had not given him the power to do so. So a few things to point out here. One, the Philistines were too strong for for, uh, Israel. The army is fearful, discouraged, and frightened because Saul is discouraged and fearful and frightened, and they follow the king. David goes to battle. The Philistine falls. David comes in the name of the Lord. Now the Philistines will continue to plague Israel for more decades until David is king and finally drives them back to their land and out of God's land. So a few notes in conclusion. This is far more than just the account of an ancient battle. This is far more than just about faith. David is a type of Christ. He's the anointed one. The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. The Greek word for anointed is Christ. David is the Christ, in every literal sense of the term. He is the anointed one. But he pointed towards the Christ who would come. The application here is not you can defeat any enemy if you trust God and put your mind to it. The application is the enemy is too strong for you. There's only one champion, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Without Christ, how can you defeat the kingdom of sin and misery and death? There is no way. And so look at the parallels between Christ and David. David is from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the ancestral home of David's family. And Christ needs to be born in Bethlehem because of the decree of Caesar Augustus we read in Luke chapter 2. So this was where David was tending sheep. Would have been the same area where Ruth and Boaz met. Where David was born and where Christ would be laid in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Saul lost the kingdom because he rebelled. We also know that David brought chaos to the kingdom because of his sin. But God promised that he would not take the kingdom away from David because he made a promise. And so here we have this conflict that's going to take place throughout all of the kings of Israel. Because one thing every single king of Israel had, some of them were believers and worshipped the God of Israel. Some of them were not believers and worshipped the Baals. But what all of them had in common was they were all sinners. All of them died. All of them went the way of their fathers and were buried in the tombs of the kings of David. All of them. The very last one was Coniah who was so wicked, God said through Jeremiah, no child of his will reign on this throne forever and ever and ever. If he were the ring on my hand, I would cut him off. And so the question then is, how is God going to keep his promise that the child of David would reign forever and ever and at the same time keep the curse that was on Coniah? How can a righteous and holy and just God forgive sin? It's just as possible as how can a boy kill a man like Goliath? It's the power of God. Our salvation is in the power of God and in the power of God alone. The solution to that is when Jesus is born, he's born of a virgin. So legally, he's the heir to the throne of David. He's the flesh of David through Mary. He's the legal heir to David through Joseph. And yet he is not of the flesh of Coniah because he was born of a virgin. Thus, Christ can be born flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, and yet without the original sin of Adam so that he could come as the sacrifice for our sin. That's another story. This is what, da- this is what the angel says to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. The problem was all of Israel was expecting a literal David who would come. They viewed the enemy to be Caesar and David Would take the sword and he'd go after Caesar just like David went after Goliath. They always thought that the problem was the others. But at the time of Christ, Israel was sold into bondage under the Roman Empire for the same reason they were under bondage to the Philistines because of sin and misery. We have a far greater enemy. We have a far greater enemy than the secular humanists, than Hollywood producers than the other political party, whatever your political party might be. We have a far greater enemy. It's the sin and misery of our own heart and we are held in the bondage of a real spiritual power who has a name, the accuser, Satan. And we're under his power unless he's defeated by a greater king than even David was. Remember David conquered Goliath because he came in the name of the Lord who else do we know of that came in the name of the Lord when he came into Jerusalem that triumphant entry that Sunday what were the crowd singing to him Hosanna to the son of David blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord they were quoting Psalm 118 when the great king would come just like David to destroy our enemy he would come in the name of the Lord But the very next verse in Psalm 118 says, bind the sacrifice to the altar. That's the part that Israel forgot. The conquest of the great Goliath would not come on the field of battle, but on the cross. Hebrews 2 says, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil, and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Here's the nation of Israel terrified and cowering because of the fear of death all of their lifetime and subject to bondage. And David putting to death Goliath set Israel free from the fear of death. But It was all a picture because it didn't happen in find out the devil was still very much active as we see in the very next chapter and the next chapter after that the next chapter after that it's a picture pointing to the true one who would come the heir to the throne of david and he would go down in the river to be baptized and when he was baptized the true anointing pictured by samuel in the oil would happen when the holy spirit came upon him And when the Holy Spirit came upon him, it gave him the power to do what God called him to do. Up to and including obedience to death, even the death of the cross. The power to take all of the wrath of God upon himself and put it to death. And so Satan would be destroyed in a way that was completely unexpected. Just like Goliath was destroyed in a way that was completely unexpected. David killed Goliath without armor without even a sword, just stone and a spear. And Satan, at the point of what he thought would be his greatest victory, look at here, the son of David, the son of God, hanging on a cross, I finally won, is what Satan is saying. And yet, when Christ died, the wrath of God was fulfilled, and the children were released from bondage. How beautiful is that? And so he is called the Christ because he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. And he conquers our enemy so that we might be released from bondage. And yet we know that we're still in this earth. We're still subject to death and misery and even our sins. But we're Christians because we are partakers of his anointing the heidelberg catechism says and as partakers of his anointing we are given the tremendous privilege of taking part in the crushing of the head of the serpent in the crushing of goliath's head it's like the great champion is standing there with goliath on the ground saying okay take the story and stick it right there to the little child this is what this life is conquering those fearsome enemies because fearsome enemies, because Christ has already done it. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And yet we conquer the exact same way that Jesus conquered. Because God delights to show himself strong when we are at our weakest, our frailest, in the most pain, in the most misery. He allows Goliath to taunt Day after day after day after day after day. But the victory is assured. So we wait. We wait. But it'll never come by taking up the armor of the world. It'll only come by taking up the same armor that Jesus himself took up. You know what that is. Of course, we immediately go to Ephesians chapter 6. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. We hold on to the promise of God. We can stand with David's greater son because he died for us and took apart, took on himself our sins and he's not ashamed to call us his family or flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And therefore we suffer with him and in our suffering with him we again crush the head of the serpent until finally complete victory is ours and we stand with him in all eternity face to face having taken part in this great battle with which victory is assured. Let's close in prayer and then uh, if there's any questions I'd be happy to answer them or try to. Our Father in heaven we thank you for the mercy that you showed to us. We thank you for the tremendous privilege that you have given each one of us to fight this battle against sin and the flesh and the devil who assail us constantly without ceasing. Father, teach us to fight with the sword of the gospel and not with the weapons of the world, with the forgiveness of sins, with compassion and mercy and with love, rather than the weapons of hatred and contempt and destruction that the world uses. For we know that we will crush Satan under our feet shortly because the victory has already taken place. Give us that strength and that courage and that conviction, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.